Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been looking at Shakespeare's strange and fascinating history play, Henry IV, Part Two, the third part of a tetralogy that began with Richard II, continued with the first part of Henry IV, now the second part, and will end when Prince Hal takes the crown and becomes Henry V at the very end. Here, in Henry IV, part two, the part two suggests the kind of formula follow-up that we are used to in Hollywood when something is extremely popular and a clear hit. The producers and the money people immediately begin lobbying for repetition. Let's repeat the formula and make more money. And there are elements of Henry IV Part II that do suggest we know that the public understandably loved Falstaff in particular and wanted more, more, more. According to the story, even the Queen requested more of Falstaff. And therefore, there is a resemblance, and clearly designed as a mirror resemblance on Shakespeare's part, between the two parts of the Henry plays. And in particular, the overall structure, the alternating between the high drama of high politics in blank verse of the upper class characters, the rebellion, the revolution, the failure, and the aftermath, and a switch over and over again to the low-life characters down in usually the tavern or on the streets having their dysfunctional way of it. And that rhythm is maintained in the second play. And yet, as I suggested last time, in many ways this is not just a repeat Shakespeare trying to cash in. He does enough of that to satisfy the need for money and success, but he doesn't like just to repeat himself in a sort of blind mechanical way. He is trying something quite new in this play, something that I don't think has any real comparison anywhere else in Shakespeare. Even the low-life scenes with the comic characters in the comedies are not like this. And it's especially in the lower class scenes that this play shows itself as really in some ways quietly yet radically experimental. It's as if Shakespeare had been reading Eugene O'Neill some of the time. Very scenes go on for pages amongst the characters that surround Falstaff, and none of it advances the overall plot one inch, except thematically to represent a society in almost complete hit-bottom dissolution, the closest you can come to complete anarchism, a complete breakdown of not just law and order, but of garden variety mental health, because these characters are exceedingly dysfunctional. There is a reality TV aspect to some of the scenes that is really startling and often powerfully effective. But the alternation does continue. 
in Act 2, which is what we had been looking at last week, the first scene opens with Mistress Quickly, the person who runs the tavern down below, brothel up above, employing a couple of thugs to shake down Falstaff for what he owes her because she's pretty sure with war coming and Falstaff again going to go off and pretend to be part of the battles, she's pretty sure that he's going to cheat her and go away without paying yet again and she needs the money to survive. So she hires a couple of guys to lean on him and yet it ends despite the attempted intervention of Chief Justice Silence on the part of law and order, it ends with Falstaff drawing Mistress Quickly into a corner, saying something to her, we know not what, but we can guess, and succeeding in conning her, not only into letting him get away without paying, but to pawn some of her possessions, her plate, in order to pay him even more. This poor woman who is infatuated with Falstaff, and he just coldly, shamelessly exploits her. Falstaff in Henry IV Part One elicits a great deal of sympathy simply by the contrast with the upper-class characters he is nominally upper class himself. He is Sir John Falstaff, which makes it even more outrageous that he is hanging about with the dregs of society down at the other end of things. But he wants nothing to do with the preposterous ideas of honor and the glory of war that possess people like Hotspur. He knows better. And we have a good deal of sympathy with his detachment from the vapors that characters like Hotspur are capable of becoming intoxicated by. This play was sometimes put on when I was young during the Vietnam War, War era as an anti-war play, and it can certainly be played that way, and the more attention a production gives to Falstaff, the more it's going to become that. that. So in Henry IV, Part One, Falstaff comes off as a vital, full-of-life character who is detached from the various illusions that are leading any number of the main characters to their deaths. It changes, though, in Part Two. As Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost began, begins by looking like a titanic, magnificent rebel figure, and God the Father on the throne looks like a reactionary tyrant, slowly through the course of Milton's epic, that begins to change and we realize that we have been taken in by Satan's acting. And acting is a prime motif in Henry IV, Part Two putting on a big show that is nevertheless quite obviously over-the-top fake. Any number of characters do that, both on the lower and the higher levels, you might say. And Falstaff himself, we begin to realize, has been acting 
apart. And we have been, to some degree, taken in and unable to help ourselves sympathizing with some things while at the same time blinding ourselves to the fact that this man manipulates people, not the upper class who maybe deserve it, but people lower than him who have no defenses and who are going to pay a big price. Falstaff recruits people to the battle that he knows are not fit to go into combat because it's profitable for him to do that. And he says they'll fill a grave trench as quickly as any other man. He ruthlessly exploits Mistress Quickly for money. He's exploiting Hal too, though that's a little different because after all, the future King of England can really afford it and his credit card has no limits on it. Nevertheless, there is a coldly manipulative and false aspect to Falstaff that becomes clearer and clearer and relates him to the coldly manipulative false characters that really dominate this play from top to bottom, from beginning to end, with how trying to wend his way through this labyrinth as through a minefield. We saw Falstaff exploit Mistress quickly and play her false with false stories. We move then in Act Two, Scene Three to Northumberland, one of the top rebel figures whom we remember from Henry IV, Part One, as first the father of Hotspur and second, basically, the cause of his own son's death because Northumberland, sensing that it was a lost cause, called in sick to the Battle of Shrewsbury, the decisive battle that takes up the whole of Act Five of the First Henry play. He leaves everybody in the lurch, and the only two people with the guts, not common sense, but at least the guts, to remain standing and not run away and head for the hills, are the Scottish Douglas and his own son Hotspur, who insist on fighting, and Hotspur dies. Douglas, his big blustering Scottish Douglas, his nerve breaks at the last minute and he runs like a coward, so he survives. But poor Hotspur, who was the one genuinely noble warrior in the first Henry play, has died because his own father refused to back him up. Too risky. Now, we turn to Henry IV, Part Two, Scene Three, and we see Northumberland, who, at the beginning of this second Henry play, had thrown off his crutch and nightcap, with which he had been playing crafty sick in the dryly ironic phrase of the personified rumor who is the chorus figure in the opening of the play. He throws away his props and says, I'm for battle now, my son is dead. I am just in a nihilistic mood. We're gonna go down fighting. Two scenes later, enter Northumberland, surrounded by women, his wife, and rather to our shock perhaps, 
because we remember her vividly from the first Henry play, the wife of Hotspur, Kate, back in that play, now a widow. And what these two women do, in very short order, believe me, it does not take much arm-twisting, is convince Northumberland to betray the rebel cause a second time and run away to Scotland because another decisive battle is shaping up and they fear that it is not good for the rebel cause. The prognosis is not good. The media and all the surveys say chances are not good. And they say, you need to get out. His wife, understandably, and Lady Percy, formerly Kate, chimes in with the longest speech, and we can understand it, because what she says to him is, don't be like my husband. Don't be like Hotspur and go into battle anyway, like a madman, she says, and get himself killed. It is quite understandable that she would have no desire to see more idealistic, deluded male antics, this time on the part of Northumberland himself. And therefore, Northumberland, in very short order, acquiesces and says, okay, I really did want to have a vacation in Scotland. After all, we're out of here. So much for the honor and glory of the rebel cause, because Northumberland is as high up the rebel totem pole as it gets. We move again to the other end of the spectrum, Act, scene, act 2, Scene 4, is an extraordinary scene. This is exactly the type of thing that I am talking about where I say Shakespeare is experimenting with a kind of comic ironic naturalism that is really extraordinary. I admit I have never seen the second part of Henry IV staged before and I'd be fascinated to see how this came off dramatized because there is an enormous opportunity for several actors to take the scenery and chew on it because the whole scene is utterly overacted deliberately and on some level you finally realize consciously overacted. These people are drama queens and drama kings. They are making trouble, not because they're driven by something to do it, but because in their heart of hearts, they're having a really good time. It's fun to make scenes. It's fun to act like lunatics and fools. And if you doubt that, take a look these days at the United States Congress, at the antics of people like Lauren Boebert, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, and in Ohio, Jim Jordan, these clown acts 
And those people, unfortunately, have a great deal of political power and hold high office. Here, it is the powerless people who have nothing else to do. It sounds cruel and condescending, but I don't mean it that way at all. I have actually more sympathy for these characters than I do for most of the upper class characters. But these people are trapped in a dead end life. And I think that's the point of these low life scenes that are so hugely bulking in Henry IV part two. This is a society that has seen law and order disintegrate so far that this is what life is especially on its lowest levels. And there's nothing else to do but get drunk, get wild, break things, and have a great good time. It is reality TV. It is the impulse behind reality TV. And that's exactly what we see here. We also get new characters in this play, several of them, and every single one of them are these over-the-top, Shakespeare's comic types are usually exaggerations, but these carry it to a new extreme. And we get two of them here within this same long scene of, act, of scene four of act two. First, we get the prostitute named Dahl Tirsheet. Dahl is the original drama queen. When she's not working, she's picking fights with men. She picks at men until they get all irate and start fighting with her. And if she can make two men fight each other, all the merrier. And whether this is sexist or not, this is what she is clearly doing. She first starts picking on Falstaff because they have an old relationship of bickering and sort of pseudo-fighting. The hostess, in other words, Mistress Quickly, remarks on this. By my troth, she says, this is the old-fashioned. You two never meet, but you fall to some discord. Every time, this is a well-acted drama, and they're both having a good time at it. And Dahl just keeps picking him, picking and picking at him. And Falstaff, of course, gives back as good as she gives. Then another over-the-top character comes in, Pistol, who only basically gets this scene as his 15 minutes of fame. But this would be one hell of an entertaining fun role for some actor who is not only allowed, but expected to go completely over the top. Pistol is the on steroids version, you might say, of a well-worn comic type that goes all the way back to classical drama, so much so that it has an actual name of this type, the Miles Gloriosus, the braggart soldier. The braggart soldier who is nevertheless a complete fraud. All his bragging is complete lies. And that's Pistol 
his name betrays what he is, but in fact, he's not that. He is a pistol whose powder is wet, you might say. And in fact, uh, there are puns upon his name, but he is a pistol incapable of making more than just noise. He has no real charge, and there are, yes, sexual innuendos all the way through the dialogue here, uh, just relentlessly so. But Pistol would be just a great good time for some actor. He spouts, he spouts all this fustian that doesn't even mean anything. It's just kind of gibberish. A lot of it is quotations from plays, actual plays, by Shakespeare's contemporaries, including Marlowe, including Green, half the theatrical tradition, but all thrown into a stew and mangled, together with a good deal of stuff that makes no sense whatsoever, but is declaimed. If you remember Hamlet's advice to the players, this is exactly what Hamlet was warning against. Don't overact. It out-Herod's Herod, because Herod in the old mystery plays was another comic type where you were expected to twirl your mustache and go over the top. When I say twirl your mustache, obviously that's an allusion to the old silent theater which goes back in turn to the melodramas on the 19th century stage, where this type of acting was very common and very much appreciated by the audience. And Pistol is an early character very much in that line. Example of his speech, for example, includes the following. I'll see her damned first to Pluto's damned lake by this hand to the infernal deep with Erebus and tortures vile also. Hold hook and line, I say. Down, down, dogs, down, faitors. Have we not Hiron here? Mistress quickly tries to calm him down. Be quiet, tis very late. I beseech you now. Aggravate your collar. The typical Shakespearean comic device of uneducated characters using the exact opposite word because they're ignorant from the one that they really want. Please aggravate when she means tone down your collar. But he indeed aggravates it. These be good humors indeed, he said. says, shall pack horses and hollow pampered jades of Asia, which cannot go but 30 miles a day, compare with Caesars and with cannibals and triant Greeks? Nay, rather damn them both with King Cerebus, and let the welkin roar. Shall we fall foul for toys? That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Don't even try to understand it. He's just spouting. And it's all an act. He has probably never been in a battle or a street fight in his entire life. But he's making enough of a fuss that finally Falstaff gets in a fight with him. This is exactly what Dahl had been, no doubt, hoping for. Get two men going. He tries to throw out an act of bouncer and throw out pistol, and they get into a fight. And finally, Bardolph drives pistol out, 
and Falstaff, poor boy, has sustained a slight wound. It's probably like a minor cut in the shoulder. And, oh, Dahl says, you sweet little rogue, you. Alas, poor ape, how thou sweatst. Come, let me wipe thy face. She's all over, Falstaff. She says, Thou art as valorous as Hector of Troy, worth five of Agamemnon and ten times better than the nine worthies. She has some education. And so forth and so on. And then she sits on his knee and uh, he and she do a Lauren Boebert. This is the week that she was caught in a theater making out with her boyfriend and an audience with children in it. And here they are kind of shamelessly going at it without getting a room, even though the rooms are right upstairs in this place. And, you know, it's kind of amazing. This is Shakespeare. And yet this is a low-level irony. Shakespeare does not dwell often on this level, but he was very good at it. And the prince shows up with points, his usual comrade in mischief, and they tease Falstaff yet once again and try to embarrass him and so forth and so on. And that part does revert to a kind of deliberate echo of the first play, just because the audience does want a sequel. So you got to give them what they want and satisfy that impulse to them. And then as another echo, a knock comes at the door and all the fun hijinks of the lowlife characters is interrupted by a summons to the serious political business that is about to go on. The rebels are going to give it one last hurrah. We all have to gather together. This very much mirrors what happens in the first Henry play. And that means that Mistress Quickly, or the hostess, has to say goodbye. And so does Daltersheet. As Falstaff goes out, Mistress Quickly says, Fare thee well. I have known thee these 29 years, come peace, God time. And gives him a warm fare thee well. And Daltersheet? Well... They call for her, but we never see her come because she comes blubbered is the last word of the hostess. In other words, she's coming, but she's crying. After all that bickering, she's crying. Yes, will you come, doll? The last words of that scene, the last words of Act Two. And we enter Act Three. And we totally switch. The rhythm of the play takes these enormous mood swings from hijinks to an extreme low melancholy on the part of Henry IV, who is in his nightgown, which mirrors the opening of the play when Northumberland was with a crutch and a nightcap. But here, 
Henry IV is not faking it. He is truly dying. The imagery in this play, first of disease, and then of death itself, and especially of death through age, through the declining of vitality and death through old age, with the sense that it is in some ways a premature old age, that this has aged him. This week's Expanding Eyes newsletter is about old age and ageism. And it begins with the complaints these days that Joe Biden is just so old. He's 80 years old. He's too old to be president even now, let alone a second time, even though Donald Trump is only three years younger than him. But he's just too old. And look at the pictures of him. But the point I make in the newsletter, every president in my lifetime, I once saw a roster of before and after photos of all the presidents that have held office in my rather long lifetime. And every single one of them over four or eight years looks visibly aged. The office does that to you understandably. So yes, Biden has aged. They all aged. Even Ronald Reagan, the Hollywood actor, you could see that he was older by the end of it. And here, the king who came on as in his prime in Richard II when he deposed the king and became Henry IV, is now two plays later on the verge of death very much on the verge of death, and we will see that coming up. Here, he's not only on the verge of death, but he is in what we would call extreme clinical depression. Uh, he's on his way towards the realm that Macbeth ends up in at the end of that play, although not from a sense of murderous guilt in the way that Macbeth is. But nevertheless, an extremely black depression and makes some rather significant speeches about it. The resemblance to Macbeth is almost in inevitable because what happens at the end of Macbeth's play is that he cannot sleep the guilt and strain of what he has done means that he can no longer sleep. His wife can sleep, but she sleepwalks, as we know. But Macbeth has murdered sleep, the famous lines from the play. Here, Henry IV, with what underlying guilt is an interesting interpretive question, also cannot sleep, and he's talking about it in a long soliloquy that opens Act Three, O oh, sleep, O oh, gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse, how have I frighted thee that thou no more will weigh my eyelids down? And goes on to say, even a shipboy up riding the top of the mast up there in the crow's nest, looking as a lookout even he can fall asleep 
upon the high and giddy mast, sleep will seal up the shipboy's eyes and rock his brains in cradle of the rude, imperious surge and in the visitation of the wings. He can sleep way up there in a halfway storm, and yet I can't sleep here in my bedroom. And he ends that speech by bequeathing us one of the most famous Shakespearean lines, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And he will not get better. He will not throw this off. He will continue to decline. And part of his problem is despair over the state of England. It is not just personal depression, but depression over the fate of the kingdom, about which he is on the verge of despair. He says, then you perceive the body of our kingdom, how foul it is, what rank diseases grow. And we have seen repeatedly the imagery of disease over the body politic, the body of England, in a way that foreshadows Hamlet, coming up not many years after this play, but having a rather gross glory of its own. And he finally ends with an extraordinary speech that sounds the theme of the generations, the conflict between the young and old generations, and the old generation really reaching a point of decline where all they can do is die and get off the stage. Oh God, that one might read the book of fate and see the revolution of the times. But if you could do that, if you could read the Book of Fate and see the revolution, the cycles of history, he goes on to despair. Oh, if this were seen, the happiest youth, viewing his progress through what perils past, what crosses to ensue, would shut the book and sit him down and die. If youth knew what was ahead, youth would just sit down and die. That is not true of his son, of how who will become Henry V. How will wend his way through this generational labyrinth and try to come out with something other than the impasse that the other characters form a pattern of narcissistic youthfulness, high idealism but not grounded in reality. That is Richard II, that is Hotspur, or cynical older characters who have no loyalty to anyone and who will betray anyone, even their own son, because they realize there is no glory, there's only power and there's only advantage. Better take advantage. They are utterly cynical because they are old and utterly worn out. They are past it. 
We are in the United States facing a crisis, and again, I touch on this in the newsletter, where most of the people causing most of the crisis, and it's a crisis of democracy itself, it's old people clinging to power, clinging to a discarded vision of the past that is rightly discarded, wanting to go back to the past because the past is not only familiar, but it's the place where their kind was privileged. And they are the problem, the old people, and of course, I'm one of them. The older generation is the problem and they are holding back everything. Wouldn't it be better if the boomers just died off? It's a question, though there are various answers and not all of them are as simple as, yeah, sooner the better, though that is one answer. Here, Henry IV has reached a kind of sense of the meaninglessness of it all. And it is true that all he can do now is die. His men will try to convince him otherwise, and we will go on from there because it's not over. He's wrong that this is not the end of it. There is more to come, and partly through the agency of the very person he most despairs of, his son Prince Hal, whom he thinks is utterly worthless and on the verge of betraying him in order to become king. And he is wrong on all counts. We will pursue that next time.